You are listening to Something Rather Than Nothing. Creator and host, Ken Vellante. Editor and producer, Peter Bauer. So what were you doing the other night? Were you doing a, like a stage thing, a stage, uh, like a little training? Yeah, I'm directing. I started this year, um, I started a youth theatre. So um, I'm sure I told you the last time we were chatting, um, I was fortunate enough to be involved in youth theatre when I was growing up. And that was what kind of instilled in me the confidence and uh, and I, basically I got to see that, you know, theatre was actually a job that people could do um, yeah. and not just, you know, something that's a hobby. So, um, yeah, so I've been working with a group called Drama House um, out, out, of, out of the city centre of Dublin, but still in Dublin. And we started a youth theatre this year. Um, and so I've been working with the the founder of Drama House, and we're ta- we're participating in a competition with the with the National Theatre in London, where they commission a number of plays every year for young people. So we're we're taking on one of the plays, and I'm directing one of them this year, which is um, an enormous uh, challenge because we have no idea if we'll. Be allowed to be in class together or have to rehearse on zoom or have to perform on zoom or perform on stage or whether we'll have an audience everything is absolutely up in the air so it's been a great lesson in just being in the moment i suppose yeah and it sounds it sounds it sounds exciting um and i think the the uncertainty you know is is definitely part of part of any production so, hey, Rachel, I'm talking to the listeners right now. I'm going to describe what's going on. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, we have Rachel Lally here, who is, a, 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 I don't want to say an old friend of the show, but a, a friend of the show over time. I looked it up, Rachel. You know, uh, I looked it up. You are on episode uh, 41. Uh, I have that episode date as as July 1st and um, a lovely episode. I will say, I got to say, Rachel, that I continued the show after you were on because not that your answers weren't good, but you didn't resolve all the questions. So even after you were on, I decided to continue the, the show. Some questions were were unanswered but um uh so uh we have rachel back and and rachel uh wanted to welcome you and i think you're going to ask me questions isn't that what we decided i'm going to turn the tables on you ken because i've been listening to you for a while and you've been asking all the questions and being the philosopher you are i feel like you need to be in the spotlight and we need to put you in front of the microphone and we need to <laughs> shine the light on you for a moment. And and I'm going to ask you some questions and see how you do. Okay, before I do get to ask one as a point of personal privilege, uh, I'd imagine these might be a combination of the strange combination of six of one, half a dozen of the other and something rather than nothing. That's a mouthful. That is a mouthful. Yeah. Um, and it's going to be off the wall, I'd say. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Rachel. I'm ready and I'm thoroughly terrified. Good, good. That's where I like it. I'll, I'll start off easy. I'll easy in gently and then I'll hit you when you least expect it. So, Ken, tell me, 
What were you like as a young person, as a young human? As 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 a young person, um, I don't remember. Um, uh, <laughs> I talk to people sometimes, and they're like, "I remember when I was like three years old, and uh, you know, I was I was staring at the tree, and it was sunny, and it was beautiful, and I was blissful." Like I don't know. Like I, I have memories. Actually, Rachel, you're going to appreciate what I think my first memory is. And it might be uh, illustrative. I think I was supposed to be going to preschool. And I was in line and somebody made fun of me. And I punched that person in the stomach and I never got taken into school. I think that happened. Um, I, I got pushed in line uh, when when I was younger. So that, that definitely threw me off. No, I... I um, didn't do a lot of art. I did a lot of reading. I was a very athletic kid. I played baseball. I played football. I was really fast, uh, really fast runner. And um, I didn't create many things uh, that I recall, but I really enjoyed sports. And um, I uh, I did well in school. Um but uh, yeah, not as far as art or creativity. I had a lot of energy. I was a smart little kid. I was a good little athlete. And I had a like a troublemaker streak in me. And I think that's come out in art and in the work that I do as, as a union rep. Can you remember what the kid hit you for? What they made fun of you about? Um... I don't know, but it was kind of weird. It's like I wasn't socialized properly. Like it was too young. You know what I mean? Like when you take a little kid, it's like, hey, I want to take the kid to go on to Santa's lap. And, you know, it doesn't work out. It's like way before time. But um, no, it was just like I, I like to tell the that I remember this interaction. or I had this interaction that I was fighting for justice or something like that. Rachel, I can't tell you that. I much might have just been like, irritated and maladjusted. That might be a work of creation of your own. We'll never know what we can. <laughs> Thank you. You're trying to salvage it. Thanks, Rachel. <laughs> um, so um, you you do a lot of things. You, you like me, are a multidisciplinary artist. You have your podcast, you paint, you write. You probably do lots of other stuff that I don't know about. I know you've been working on videos and been involved in a burlesque scene um, and lots of other things. So what forms of art do you enjoy? And I suppose there's two parts of this question. What part, what forms of art do you enjoy consuming and what uh, forms of art do you enjoy being involved with? Yeah, I, um, I'm, 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 I'm very, I would say reasonably, um, obsessive about art that I love. And by that, I mean, I've, you know, I, I've read and listened to hundreds and, and, and thousands of books, you know, over, over over my life. I've watched a ton of movies. My dad was a huge movie buff, and we would watch the worst movies and the best movies, you know, um, terrible horror movies, uh, low-budget movies, um, you know, the top movies. And um, so a lot of movies and a lot of books. And then um, a very pivotal moment for me, uh, I never really saw painting or painted or new painters. But when I was 17, I had the opportunity to uh, travel overseas on a class trip. And I went to Spain 
and I studied Velazquez and I studied uh, Spanish painting and I was able to go to the Prado and I was just, um, you know, Rachel, I was uh, uh, just a city kid. I'm from Pawtucket, Rhode Island, the East Coast in the, in the U.S. And uh, so a lot of this higher art or the Prado, all this type of stuff was mm-hmm. kind of like talking that I'm taking a trip to Mars. You know what I mean? It was, it was very different uh, than the experience of others. But um, I love movies, I love painting. Uh, and I, and I love books. Um, I do enjoy writing. I don't write a lot. Um, and you said I'm in a, a, I did a, a, a documentary on Zora von Pavanin, who was also mm-hmm. a, a guest on episode 10. Um, and, uh, yeah, just started working, uh, on video. Another video project I worked on was with a friend of mine, artist, Megan McGrordy. Uh, which was uh, a work, uh, Why She Runs, about women running for office around the United States in the 2016-2018 election and the unique uh, issues women face while running for office. And Rachel, I'm sure you're sensitive to some of these things where, you know, why do you have a press conference with a a long discussion about what a female candidate is wearing rather than her position on, you know, public housing. Right. Yeah, um, We certainly have that problem here too. <laughs> yeah, that, yeah. So, um, yeah. So those are some of the things that I, that I really enjoy and, and, and things that I've done and, and I adore painting, um, you know, myself. Um, so, um, yeah. Great. So tell me more about your painting. Let's, let's chat about your art. Let's talk about what, how you, what you know, how you come to create what you do. What is your process? Um, how you decide what projects to work on? Oh my gosh! You know, Rachel, I feel like uh, I'm, I'm excited by by hearing these questions as much as I have asked them. I, I I gotta admit, I probably haven't thought too much about it. No, painting for me is a very strange relationship and process, and. Um, the reason why I say it's strange is that I, Rachel, I don't recall painting anything at <laughs> all at, in my life prior to being when I was 45. And uh, somebody introduced me to painting and it was it was very crucial at that point. It was about three years ago. And um, I didn't know, you know, kind of that I had permission to paint or what you used or what you, you know, any part of the process. But I learned and like a lot of things I've studied is self-taught. And at that point, it was very important for me to communicate in a different way, Rachel. You know, when you say things with words or you say things visually, they're very powerful languages, um, but they can communicate different things and going to be different ways of speaking. Um, so... When I started painting, it was just kind of like an outburst of like whatever the heck showed up. And then I started to realize that I might be able to express things abstractly or formally or by a strange design rather than ways I wasn't comfortable with, you know, technical expertise, uh, being able to see something and then record it on the canvas. I haven't shown myself to be any of that, and that hasn't been my interest. It's been more of more of a feeling 
And I also paint with a great, great, great impatience, um, meaning that I can't stay in front of it for too long. So it tends to be evocative and reactive and a little bit uneven of an experience. I don't go to the easel to, uh, to just drift away for a few hours. It's actually somewhat of the opposite of that experience. So it's mm -hmm. been an exploration for me. Crazy. You um, you said two really interesting things there. The first was that um, you didn't realize that you had permission, you know, at the age that you were to participate. I think, um, well, I'm a big advocate for, you know, everyone can learn anything. And I hear this a lot when I teach drama myself, you know, people say like, oh, but, I, you know, I'm not an actor. I don't, I'm not creative. I don't they make excuses or they feel like they're not allowed or there's barriers up and it's not for them or they're not allowed to try certain things. And it's it's really important for people to know that they you can start anything at any moment in time. And and once you want to learn something, you can learn how to do it. Um it's it's really, really important. And I think um the the second thing you said that was really interesting um was about just just going into it with no sort of preconceptions and just like I think your your painting work from what I've seen anyway is very expressionist so you, you put a lot of yourself into it but it's not defined by you know what anyone else has told you it should be or um you know it's your it's your own it's your own conversation with the canvas so I think that's really important yeah, I think, Rachel, and I want to say this because I've been talking to, to folks uh, around this. You know, I've been, quite honestly, in doing the podcast, I've been, I'm really just, you know, befuddled at art and art processes. I'm, I'm just truly fascinated by what artists do and how they do it, and, you know, including myself. But um, I'm really just always kind of just, you know, in a, in a state of wonder um, about creating things. And... You know, I uh, I think I have a different relationship with with painting, with writing, with anything, with video, and with you know producing a podcast. Um, and I think part of my task has been to create a good relationship with each one of those, mm -hmm. and I'm still in the process of doing so because um, I find that I'm having a relationship with what I'm creating. And sometimes I think it's manifest in kind of unhealthy relationship aspects. Like I want to make sure my relationship with what I create is calibrated and expansive and serving my own mental health. <laughs> yeah, I think very much what you're talking about is the, is the argument between the, the process and the product. And sometimes the process is more important than the product. And sometimes the, the focus is on the product more than the process. And, yeah. and both are okay. Both are okay. <laughs> yeah, that's a really good distinction. Um, that's, you know, that's helpful. Um, and everything I create has been more towards like, you know, health and health and better, betterment. So that distinction, I think is really helpful. That's why I'm talking to you, Rachel. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's really interesting to think about, you know, and the processes are important. I think, you know, most of the time, uh, 
the, the actual artistic process itself, because so much of it is invisible for it, for the person who views the final product. They don't necessarily see the whole process that goes into it or the thought patterns or the, you know, all, you know, sometimes you can look at a painting and not realize like that's a month's worth of sketches or years worth of playing with a theme or yeah. you can go and see a play and not, you don't see the months and months of rehearsals that have gone into it or the years of training that an actor has been through or you watch a film and you forget that it was you know filmed over the space of a year in like loads of different locations and stuff but the the process lots of things happen in the process that are very magic and and the the product isn't gonna be the same if you don't go through all those steps either yeah, and I that that process versus the the outcome is is something that I'm newer in the relationship with, and the painting process itself is very therapeutic for me. The simple application of wet paint onto a canvas and those strokes in and of itself probably has most of the therapy for me. So I know that. So I'm, I got yeah, that. So and that's helpful. Thing as well, <laughs> you're saying about you know expressing yourself in a, in a visual way, which I think lots of people think is being sort of an out there kind of thing or like a thing that artists do. But when you look at the statistics of how people receive information and the actual, the communication of words being like 10% of how you receive your impression of someone or a message and the visual or nonverbal information being like a much higher percentage of that, something like almost, you know, 40, 50, 60%. Um, it, it's no doubt that humans constantly are looking for these visual ways to communicate with each other. It's it's really important to us, like on a very basic scientific level as well. Thank you, Rachel. This is why I have you. You're helping <laughs> me along. <laughs> okay, so, right. What's the situation at the moment with you guys there in with COVID and the the pandemic and stuff. So uh, here in Dublin, Ireland, we have we are literally we've just come out of a six week, quite severe lockdown where everything but essential services has been open. So we've been still able to go to the supermarket and stuff, but not much more than that. So this week is the first week of us being able to to go to like you know clothes shops or. Um, a restaurant uh, with very strict measures still in place before Christmas. I guess the goal here is for everyone to be able to spend Christmas with their families with little risk of, of infection rates going up. So where are you guys with that at the moment? Yeah. Oh my gosh. Right. That's such <laughs> a mess. Um, it's um, this is, this is the, I, I don't know. It feels like, for the last few months, it feels like um, kind of being held hostage uh, and then not by the government or any of that type of thing. Uh, for, for me here, it's it's the the problem is, is the rest of Americans, um, because we've seen this uh, huge acceleration of um, kind of like a denial uh, conspiracy theories. I'm not sure if you've seen a lot of this. It's real. It's I've it's been real. following a lot. Yeah. And yeah. We, certainly, we certainly have had. Uh, a, a surge or like a, a, a just this emergence of of a, a subset of society that I 
didn't think was so large in this country that are very anti-science, anti, I mean, anti-establishment, but I, I don't necessarily disagree with that, but uh, very anti-fact, I would say. Well, I, I think that part of the dynamic that I've seen that's changed, I mean, Rachel, you're, you're a thinker, I'm a thinker. I mean, there are certain, uh, I want to say assumptions, there's certain beliefs that I had, like if you take, take a look, you know, uh, uh, here uh, for, for the United States, right? I don't, it's really, I, I mean, the United States has a very violent, bloody, difficult history, but I didn't see the U.S. as like a, a fascist place. Like I, I didn't see that there was something in the spirit where people would kind of be like, nah, like nobody could tell me what to do. I don't need to, to take, you know, commands from a, a, an old man, you know, <laughs> like, like there was just kind of some like spirit of rebellion. Um, and I honestly don't, <laughs> I, I overestimated that, that piece. And, um, yeah, I mean, we're we're I'm experiencing some things here and just seeing what the in this country where, you know, you actually have a verifiable like numerical outcome of an election where I think it's something like 80 plus percent of like the Republican Party here doesn't has not accepted or won't enunciate that another candidate has won that you have massive resistance to um you know some health protocols um, it's just, it's just really incredible that there are forces, uh, at, at play that seem kind of beyond the control of, I don't know, maybe like rational, balanced minded, science oriented, health oriented, communal living. It's kind of like some of the worst aspects here of like individualism. Uh, I'm going to get my own thing anti-government, anti-anybody-tell-me-anything has run rampant and uh, made it a very, very, you know, dangerous situation here. Um, so uh, I don't know. Like I said, I feel like the divisions that are here is I, I, I've never felt such strong antagonism in, in categorically towards people who are endangering my health and what it means for the future. So it's, I feel it is a pretty intense situation um, with surprises. And I've heard some surprise in your voice about some of the things you've seen, I think, during the pandemic there. Is that correct? Well, yeah, I mean, it's just unprecedented here that something on this scale would happen. And I suppose it's the first time um you know, for my, certainly for my generation, probably for, for many generations in this country where we've, we've had to trust our government. And I mean, our, our government is, whether they're trustworthy or not, I mean, there's, there are experts and there are people you can trust within that group. And um, what I feel is happening in, in the US is that there's a lot of distrust like in in various factions and distrust of different parts of society you know it, it's very much um in contrast with each other there is there is mistrust there and it's very 
vicious and aggressive, I think, sometimes. Yeah, and I think, you know, for me, this might sound a little strange, but, you know, with, with Trump, it was he's a, you know, He's a, you know, media reality type show type guy. And, you know, the reality shows came out when they were trying to bust the the screenwriters and such uh, over here in the U.S. Right. So there was this regular old, you know, your regular old programming. Uh, and then when the writer strike came about, they moved more towards a reality format in order to try to bust the, the union. So we're like mm-hmm. part of this with Trump is like. I think we're unpaid actors in a reality show. <laughs> um, yeah, it just it's, feels it, it just feels that way um, with uh, hopefully a peaceful transfer of power in, in in January. So, fingers crossed, and I hope I hope it is peaceful and it works out. And uh, yeah, we're all we're all the rest of the world are waiting to see what happens. So, <laughs> in terms of of what is happening uh, culturally, uh, politically at the moment. Um, where does art fit into all of that? Well, yeah, I mean, I've been, you know, as you know, uh, asking a lot, I guess, because I think there's been a couple major disruptions, at least in my experience here in the U.S., as far as um, uh, the pandemic and, you know, the role of, you know, the role of art in a pandemic to, you know, is it value? Does it go up? Does it increase? I think it does. But also there's the component of social change um, that that we've seen here, particularly in uh, very close to me in, in, in Portland and uh, the historical racial um, injustices uh, in, in the U.S. And I believe, you know, right now uh, that Art has a very, very pivotal role in a different role for different people. For some, I think it is, you know, part of the revolution or part of the opening up of uh, opportunity, ability, consciousness, you know. So I work in the labor movement and, you know, pickets, visual pickets, protests. Um, bodies, you know, uh, artists putting their bodies on 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 the line um, in in protest uh, protesting uh, racial injustice mm-hmm. uh, in the U.S. I see a lot of those things as very artistic acts in formal art, um, helping helping that uh, helping that happen. So I view art uh, it, it, now as having such a, a vital, active, everyday role in, um, in disruption, uh, but also in uh, awareness about the social change uh, that's going on. I get excited about it, mm-hmm. um, but, I, but I think there's a countervailing potential in art of being a, a conservative reinforcer. You know what I mean? Uh, uh, of, 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 you know, white power of you know kind of historical injustices so it can cement injustice but it can also uh disrupt uh art's ability to do that yeah you're dead right and actually it's very interesting what you said about you know when all the the screenwriters went on strike you know the the reality tv format became at the forefront and it, it is kind of interesting how that narrative can shift and it can be 
you know, art can be abused and misused as well. And I think uh, many artists don't like to accept that reality or think about it too much. So I think that's a really important point that you brought up. So, Ken, what is art? (laughs) (laughs) I don't have a big answer on this. Uh, my, My answer on this is art is somebody pointing at something and showing you it. An artist is going to put a, a going to paint something and put it on the wall and point to it. It's going to be a video is going to be, but the artist is going to point at something and say, look at this. And so does art necessary with art defined by the fact that there is an observer or an audience? I think it's on both sides. I think there is intention, you know, and in a lot of discussions I've had uh, with artists like yourself and others on the, on the podcast there, there, there tends to be two major elements to this, right? One is the, the artist, like the, the intent of the artist and one is, one is, is, is the viewer. So I do see the relationship as the individual who's pointing, physically pointing, showing, representing, saying that this is something for you to look at. Um, but it is dependent. It is dependent on, uh, on, on the others, on the other's eyes. Um, so there is that relationship, I think, between, uh, the art piece in that, which is viewed, but primarily that the artist is pointing at something and say, look at this, please look at this, or it's $25 to look at this. (laughs) And what or who would you say has made you who you are? Um, can you hear the guy singing? Hang on. <laughs> Is there something in the background? Do the guy outside singing like at the top of his voice? <laughs> I couldn't even hear it. It's a mysterious sound. Um, who or what? Mean? You know, my 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 uh, my 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 parents. My 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 parents were, and 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 especially my mom. And I want to say a couple things about that my parents, you know, my mom was 16 when she was pregnant with me. Uh, my dad, yeah. so she, she, she was a sophomore in high school and my dad was a senior in high school. And, uh, you know, they're just, they're just a couple kids trying to get by, you know, and, uh, uh both come from uh, larger families and they started a family. As a and, woman, uh, I can't imagine being a 16 year old. Yeah. Yeah. So my mom was a sophomore in high school and she ended up getting her GED. And, uh, you know, my dad was working and they, you know, they had little uh, Ken Jr. on the way. And then my brother um, and then my sister about 12 years uh, later. So I had, you know, very young parents and uh, it it really is. And um, so, you know, 
my my mom and dad really instilled upon me. I mean, they knew that we grew up in the city. They had seen a lot of stuff in the city, you know, kind of difficult things for working people, you know, things like alcoholism in the mm-hmm. family, you know, just some of the difficulties in getting through life. But they they very much created they put everything into the environment for uh, us kids to, um you know, to 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 do our thing, to kind of like have a normal uh, life, to have what we needed. But the biggest piece of it, Rachel, was that they, they, they said, they said to me, you can do whatever you want to do. You know, um, you got to go to college. You got to, you got to further your education. You got to look at possibilities, but you got to do whatever it is they feel can do. And I also want to mention something else about my mom. There were certain things that as I've gotten older, I look back where she did stuff that was just kind of like mind opening because she's a really quiet woman and she really, she's really uh, interested in, you know, having people feel comfortable and feeling at home. Mm-hmm. But we'd be watching TV in the, in the eighties and there'd be a, like a, a gay couple on, on TV or something would be on a news program. And she'd be like, what do you think about that? And she was talking about how it's important that people love each other. We get uphold love. I mean, there'd be a, I remember seeing a video that's like a natural birth. And my mom was like, watch this. This is where babies, you know, come from. This is a natural, you know, this is a natural birth. Wow. So she did a lot of, yeah, she did a lot of things that where you wouldn't know these things. She was so quiet about her just for her is fundamentally like, treat people the right way give people the dignity that they deserve let people love who they want to love let's and so it was it was quiet but it was very impactful for me and um uh and and my dad and him instilling uh both in my brother and i and my sister the ability to do what you want so they didn't they didn't close down options for me. And so I was just a city kid, wide eyed, interested in things, no idea which direction I was going. But I, I think it's very clear that my parents laid down the foundation so I could explore what I wanted in life. And um, that that I, I, I couldn't rate that more highly. She sounds like an incredible person. Both of your parents, Jimmy, your mother in particular, they're still that. together. That's that's They're amazing. Still, you know, still together. Um, I'm 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 48. So the uh, calculus calculation for my parents' anniversary, I always remember it's x plus one. So I'm 48. Their 49th anniversary is coming up. <laughs> wow. I'm so impressed that you can do maths too, because that's not as mine. <laughs> 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 what an amazing answer to that question. Uh, and so, what is it that makes you want to create things or? to be an artist? Um, I, I'd like to say, I'd really like to say, Rachel, that's a, it's an innate thing in creating the art for me, but it's not, or it's not yet. Um, I'm just being honest. I'm not connected to the deep I therapeutic. Think I, I think it sounds like it is, but. It's, it's interesting like, that you're saying that it's not because from what you from your answer, it sounds like it it is something that's very innate. Well, 
I, I feel the need uh, to, to, to be exploring these uh, issues, uh, to exploring these issues and to be creating things. Um, and I feel at this point in my life more uh, compelled to. But this is the philosopher's dilemma, and I'm probably interested in what you have to say about this, Rachel. I mean, there's something funny about this show that I do mm-hmm. where when you're a philosopher, you kind of laugh at the questions that you ask, right? What is our, why is there something rather than nothing? You know, why are we here? You know, what is death? You know, what does it mean to live a good life? All these type of things. And it isn't like if, you know, on the basis of me doing this program and the questions you ask, because you do a philosophy program yourself, that the questions aren't, the questions still kind of haunt you after the fact. Like they kind of. You can, you can never know the answers to the question, can you? You can only think about what, what the options might be. So, right. There are so many questions that you'll you'll never have the answer to. And there's many, many points in life where, you know, whether whether it's tragic circumstances or very happy circumstances, where you'll never know that why something happened for the best or the worst or why somebody did something that they did or not. You'll never have the answer to those questions. And it is the most frustrating thing I think when you're a human you you always seek for answers you seek to understand everything and to be in a place where you can accept that sometimes you just don't have the answers um and and you can be really angry and bitter about that or you can accept it and and be at peace with it or or laugh about our our struggle to to continue to try to do it anyway. Um, yeah, I mean, but that's fundamentally what being a human is, isn't it? Well, yeah, I mean, you keep, and, and I like the way that, that you put it too, and I just want to, you know, the, the, the point about the, the, the questions, the questions are haunting, but they're also, they're revitalizing, and they're also maddening. They, they contain all those the, these qualities that's, you know, that's like art itself. But on the question of like, I mean, I want to give a maybe just a, a tiny bit, a um, little more specific on like, on on creating things. Like, I know when I need to paint and I go to paint. If I'm going to write, I have to force myself to write. And when I'm doing the podcast in creating, you know, in in, in creating these type of things. I'm usually pretty darn unsure of what I'm trying to do or where it it's it's going but I like the ability that within the conversation within the creative act that other that other things um open up and I'm trying to do the podcast as an experiment so so Rachel I forget if I told you this like Coming up pretty soon, I'm going to switch over the the podcast for like a mini experiment where I switch it and call it nothing rather than something. Okay. And <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm going to be doing this. So we can do a few more episodes and then I'm going to switch it within the context of the program. And the idea is this over four episodes through a Buddhism and Taoism and some of ph- philosophical traditions that point to that there actually is nothing that you can show um, that 
within that, um, to exploring the question that way. And at the end of that, I'm going to try to lead uh, uh, for a podcast, a kind of online uh, mindfulness, nothingness therapy to, you know, kind of switch the question around and have it lead towards uh, health and then go back to uh, this program. But you're doing such a, a fantastic job interviewing me. You, I, I fear you're going to take this program over, Rachel. Dave, I'm, I might have a job, Ken. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, it's, it's really interesting because as you were saying that, I mean, that's very stoic, you know, to, to live without anything or to be without luxuries and to be content with that. That, that for me is is that philosophical you know that's that's the way um so ken why is there if there is something rather than nothing now my answer it two ways isn't that kind of a weasel way after all this time <laughs> don't disappoint me now don't i um <laughs> I'm going to answer it two ways, and I want it to reflect what, you know, this this time in my life and the studies that I've done, what are actual, the way I see answers to this question. First of all, I will say that the question might be incorrectly posed, um, which I've hinted at in past episodes. Um, on a philosophical basis, I am indeed heavily influenced uh, by uh, Buddhist philosophers, including the philosopher uh, Nagarjuna. And this philosophical tradition uh, is uh, based kind of on a deconstruction. If you show things, if you point at things to, to, to be the case, now within the Buddhist tradition, there's no thing in of itself. And there's no ego or, you know, uh, observer to observe the thing. There's more of a flow in a reality of which we use language to kind of parse out, right? So what I mean by this is that I'm sitting here and I'm, I'm, I'm looking at a microphone and the microphone is there, but it's just an experience flow, but as far as language, and I need to break this apart to describe this to you, I'm going to describe myself as, as a subject, as an ego, as a person. I'm going to de describe this physical object, the microphone. But um, there's a belief within Buddhist philosophy that there's no inherent essence or in inherent thereness of either myself or the microphone. So I believe fundamentally that we are in a situation where there actually is no thing in a philosophical sense. The other way, like I said, it's a little bit weaselly to try two approaches as, at this, is that I'm heavy, heavily influenced by um, astrophysics and cosmology and, and science, and mm -hmm. it's certainly something I've studied on my own. But I've been uh, influenced in such a way that I do believe, though I can't explain, that the universe does seem to have exploded out of potentiality and to have come actually from nothing. Um, so at the end of the day, Rachel, I think I'm committed to trying to defend that there is no something. That's what I got for you. 
Well, I wasn't expecting that now at all. <laughs> I think I'm gonna I'm gonna turn the tables yet again, Ken. Um, I'm gonna ask you a question that you might not be expecting. Okay. So uh, we we both live pretty close to the coast. Yeah. Yeah, about an hour away from me. Yeah, so um, I, I'm walking along the beach one day here in here in Dublin. We're very we're very lucky here. We're on the sea, basically 20, 25 minutes in the car. You you can jump in the sea and go for a freezing cold swim. And um, there's seals, there's dolphins, there's the whole lot. Anyway, I find wow. this rock, right? And it looks amazing. Like it actually looks like a sculpture. And fortunately, because I'm me and I'm multidisciplinary and I'm very talented, um, I, I just so happened to be running a, a pop-up gallery in Dublin this week. And I decided I'm going to put this stone on display as a sculpture. I'm going to present it to the world as a sculpture. It's not, though. It's really just a rock that I found on the beach. Is it art, Ken? Uh, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's, 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 uh, that's such a good one. I'll tell you when it's, I'll tell you when it's art is because you said, look at this. And, and when it was sitting there, um, I think there's a very deep question of which philosophers can tangle with that if you are a believer in the, in a God, if you are a theist, if you are a believer mm-hmm. in God or gods, there's going to be an author behind that. And I think you can call it a, you can attempt to call it a work of art in and of itself because of the creator who's created those things or the, or, or the magic forces of the earth or whatever, that there is a creator. But if you're agnostic on that, I'm an agnostic. Then Ken, is a, is a tree a work of art? It is not. What if I'm like, hey, dude, look at this tree. It's lovely. Then maybe. It has to, there's a presentation element. I think here's, here's what I'm saying. And we can, we can kick this around. What I'm saying is these, these, these objects, these living things, these scenes, uh, that rock, that boulder with the, with the belief in a creator, I think you have an artist. If you doubt the separate creator, you don't have a work of art. But you, Rachel, you being the multi-talented person that you are, you looking at that beautiful creation, you getting away from any question of theism, whether a god created that, and you putting that for display and others saying, hey, look at this. It's an art piece now. So if I stand on the stage in the theater and do absolutely nothing, and I charge everyone like 85 quid, right? And you've you've paid your eighty five quid. You're gonna see Rachel Ali live in a I don't know what's your big arena there. Here it's the three arena. Rachel Ali in the three arena, eighty five quid tickets. And I walk on the stage. I'm like, I am art. Well, great que- great question. I would say that uh, that art in the art world or the established art world is that, right? So if I'm a famous artist, and, and I know it's an extreme position, but if, 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 if I'm an, a well-known artist, right, 
So let's go back to the rock, uh, the beautiful, we'll call it the, the rock, the rock sculpture, right? Like, it's like a Michelangelo, this rock, like it's absolutely amazing. It's, 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 it's just beautiful. And I'm uh, Andy Warhol, and I've gotten out of the city, right? I've gotten mm-hmm. out of the city. And why can't you be Ken Volante? Here's why. Ken Volante goes and sees that and says, hey, everybody, hey, art world, look at this piece of art. And they say, Ken, Ken Volante, what, what's, what's going on? Like, like, what's going on? What's the context? But there's a ready-made context in the art world for, and I'm talking Warhol now, or the name to point at something and say this is art. And because of the magic alchemy that is that we believe exists in the art world, that might be art. It's the Brillo sculpture, right? It's the Brillo box. Right? I, the canvas, yeah. Well, I worked in the grocery store, Rachel, third shift. I worked in grocery for six, seven years. When the, I, I, I love working in a grocery store because of the people. Now, when I picked up the Brillo boxes and put them on, on, on the shelf, there was, no, there was no accepted magic. There was no context for anybody would to say. Would put a frame on it? Would people consider it differently? Possibly because of my definition where I've said if, if art is somebody saying, Look at this. If you look at it and see it in that way, you're looking at a piece of art. Where did the magic happen, Rachel? What is it? Where did the magic happen? Why did the where is the (laughs) well? I mean, that's where the I was discussing recently with um, Holly Campbell on a recent episode of the podcast. And there's this book called A Big Magic, and she was just raved about it. And, and I went into it and I was like, oh, like I always like when my guests rave about something. And it was just a gorgeous book. And it's basically that there's this living idea that uh, thoughts are, uh, are, are energies that live and that these thoughts may visit you. So, Rachel, right next to you, there may be a thought of this grand play of which you're the, uh, you know, you, you are, you are the person and you latch onto that thought has been traveling the world for 2,500 years, but finally it's found Rachel Lally to receive manifestation. Isn't that how ghosts work though? Yeah, it's a ghost. It's magic. It's, it's weird. There's a transformation. I'm Um, I'm not totally against that, by the way. I'm just saying, it just sounds like a ghost. Well, I wanted to do you think there's like ghost plays and ghost songs in the world and they just like smack into you one day and you're like, oh, yeah, that's that's a great idea. Well, let's I want to go back, Rachel. I want to ask you something on the on on the bit yeah. about, you know, where there's nothing. All right. So I, I really love your I really <laughs> love what you said about. All right. I'm going on the stage. Right. And we're talking about nothing. Right. Yeah. Here I am on the stage. Right. Mm-hmm. Now, let's say it's you, Rachel. Right. Mm-hmm. So you go out on stage, and I'm going to say it's in, uh, it's, it's in, it's in Dublin. There's mm-hmm. some recognition of you, right? Um, Booed off the stage right away, like no, no, no two ways about it. Well, okay. what if you, what if you <laughs> let's change it a little bit? What if you were dialed? Uh, I mean, uh, what if you were dialed up, Rachel? Right? Your mm-hmm. parents, you, you're, you're dialed up. You, you, you go out there, people, this is Rachel Alley, and she, she's out there, 
and she's going to stand there and she does this crazy podcast. This might be a thought experiment that you're experiment that you are experiencing, you know, and then you're, you're, you're out there and you do indeed nothing do you did nothing. Yeah. Right. What it's is that nothing. event? It's nothing rather what? than something. I'm doing it's nothing. nothing. <laughs> so are you saying that the context defines the art? Well, look at an absurd, like look at an absurdist, not absurd, absurdist existentialist or a play about nothing waiting for Godot. Right, Rachel? Right? What a great play. Um, right, a great play, right? But Irish writer. you know, the deep cosmic joke is that nothing's occurring, kind of, right? I mean, nothing's... Kind of, but no, nothing is not happening. Like, it's like, you know, you put a group of people in a room and you're like, you know, you go into a class of kids... And you're like, what do you want to do? And they're like, nothing. And you're like, go on then. Do nothing. I dare you. They can't do it. They can't do nothing. Doing nothing is very, very difficult. Well, that's in connecting to the point when I was mentioning about the the Buddhism and, and, and the therapy and the fundamental question of something rather than nothing when folks sit down to meditate, which is doing nothing, which is breathing, posture, and your thoughts. First, you're not- lessons in acting, by the way, doing nothing. So hard, so hard for so many people. Well, what is the, tell me about that. Act. I'm, I'm fascinated with you as I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to take this over, but well, so Rachel, let me, it's just to kick around ideas. Mm-hmm. I, I'm fascinated by acting, right? And I have an expressive part of my personality where like, I, I just go into different characters and, 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 you know, there's, 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 there's kind of like play acting or, or something within that. Mm-hmm. Now you do. I mean, you have a, a public face with your work and you are a creator in, 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 you know, when, when you act, what mm-hmm. about what you have to say there about acting and about, you know, nothing or the mindset that you need to be in to, to, to take on another personhood? That, that's a massive question. Okay. So th- there's, there's so many aspects to it, but I'll, I'll speak about a couple. So the, the first is that to first, in order to understand the impact of all of your actions, your movements, your gestures, where you are, your relationship to the place that you're in, to the objects in the space, you first have to understand what it's like to do nothing. And it is so difficult. So like lesson of acting 101 is stand in a space, have people look at you and try to do nothing. And we are so conditioned as humans to not do that, that even that is very, very difficult. So you have people touching their hair, fixing their clothes, going from side to side, looking at their friends, trying to make someone laugh. They'll start just laughing because they feel awkward. They'll direct attention to someone else like just standing doing nothing that is that's a lesson and then the other thing is to be your authentic self which is something that clowning and comedia is very concerned with so to be present and to be 
yourself without any of those learned behaviors and expected behaviors without performing. Because in order to learn how to perform, you have to start from a space where you're not performing. But we all perform all the time, every day in our lives. So to learn how to not perform is actually the most difficult thing. (laughs) I love that. Yeah. The, the learning, uh, the learning not to perform. And I, I think, I think there's just something crucial there when I've seen it is like the, the most within the psychology of mindfulness and Buddhism is that why is it that the most basic, uh, activity that of not performing or doing anything is the most difficult, which drives a human mad or could drive a human mad. You got to get up. You got to do something else. Funny when you even speak about, you know, Buddhism and doing nothing. I'm picturing a person doing something, which is sitting with their legs crossed and being in their head. And that's not what doing nothing is. What is doing nothing, Rachel? It's so... Like I got, I could do a whole podcast on that. Like honestly, and it is literally so hard. And I've been in classes, you know, with 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 people, and you know, they've said like, "I want to do nothing." I'm like, "You're not doing nothing. You're tapping on the floor. You're getting bored. You're writing in your notebook. You're texting someone. You're looking at me because you're really <laughs> you can't do nothing. Like go go on. I challenge you. Do you can't do it." It's very difficult. It takes a lot of training. And that's what actors train to do. And that's what Buddhists aim aim for. And I'm sure lots of other spiritualists and and other professions, probably ninjas and people who are into karate and stuff. I have no idea. You have to start from neutral and then build on it. Ninjas. Yeah, some ninja ninja wisdom needs to needs to be involved i uh yeah i the the question of nothing is so fantastic and you know and the thing is too rachel i'm like totally serious on that bit of you know what i'm moving this towards because i think at the end of the day i truly believe that you know no matter what we're doing around asking these questions and things like that that the nature of um uh, philosophy art you know conversation about these things is therapeutic like it has to be therapeutic, or at least that's the way it's been posited for me, because it has to help. It has to help your living. It has to help in your discovery of how, you know, what it is, you know, how to live. Otherwise, it seems to be, you know, potentially creating this kind of like source of agitation. And um, that book that I mentioned, Big Magic, um, Elizabeth Gilbert, the author gets into this, it's this, uh, kind of male fetish fetishization of you know torture it doesn't have to be male uh women uh and, and other genders can certainly engage in this but the you know the tortured artist uh trope of you know suffering of the dostoevsky of the you know the mm-hmm. russian authors and the vodka addiction and or whatever you know i mean that there's, there's this deep end she very much rebels against that and uh, is saying you need to be in a place of, you know, openness and expansiveness for for magic to happen, and not uh, be subject to trying to just get through the day, right? That sounds like my kind of book. I'm, I'm definitely gonna source it out. 
try and find it. <laughs> how, do, how does it feel, Ken, being the tables being turned? How does it feel being interviewed? I, uh, thank you, Rachel. I, uh, I am a verbal processor, so I actually have to think a lot to like get to what my answer is. Uh, mm -hmm. And um, uh, I am, uh, I am uh, Rachel Lally. You've deeply unnerved me by changing this around. Uh, but no, it's great. It's been a, Good. absolutely Good. lovely. You are just, just, just wonderful, wonderful philosopher. Fantastic. It's been lo really lovely to talk to you again, Ken. I'm sure it won't be the last time. You are listening to something rather than nothing. <laughs>